Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, everybody. My name is David Boris. And I'm Frankie C. And this is Everybody Everybody Sucks. Sucks. The podcast where we explore the struggles and triumphs of the journey from amateur to professional. People think that artists are born great at what they do. But the truth is, in the beginning... Everybody sucks. Well, today we are joined by Marty Dodson. Hi, Marty. It's good to have you. Good to be here. Marty Dodson was born in Apple Valley, California, and he moved around for several years. He has had 10 number one songs and more than 150 cuts and counting. Marty has become one of the most accomplished writers in Nashville with notable hit singles such as Fired Up by Joe Cocker Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven by Kenny Chesney, yeah. Must Be Doing Something Right, and Let Me Down Easy by Billy Currington. His songs have been recorded by numerous artists, including Blake Shelton, George Strait, Carrie Underwood, Rascal Flatts, The Plain White Tees, didn't know that one, The Oak Ridge Boys, Don Williams, Johnny Reed, Billy Ray Cyrus, and Big and Rich. Marty currently resides in Nashville, Tennessee with his wife, Candy, and is the owner and writer for Sail Away Songs. Marty! Yes. He must be doing something right. I see what I did there. (laughs) So, Marty, what got you into music to begin with? I've always loved music. My dad was a huge music fan, big Elvis fan, and Johnny Mathis and Frank Sinatra, all that kind of stuff. And so we we had all these vinyl records at my house growing up. And I just loved to put those on and kind of get lost in them and study them. I was kind of the nerdy kid, too, who would pull the album out and read the liner notes, like of who wrote all these songs. And, you know, some of them would have the words in there. And I loved that. And then when I was about 11, my parents bought me a guitar, which I was super excited about. So I taught myself how to play guitar, and then I joined the band at school. And I decided to play the flute because all the pretty girls played the flute. So I was the only guy with all the girls that played the flute. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. That's awesome. And that kind of introduced me to like music theory and being able to read music and all that kind of stuff. Prior to that, I had just done it by ear. And I learned how to play like chords on the guitar and had a, had books that had just the chords, you know, but I, so I learned the music theory and all that kind of stuff. And then I guess in high school, some friends asked if I wanted to join a band they were in. So I joined their band and we decided to do an original. So I helped write this song. And once we played that song out and people loved it, it was like, oh man, I think I'd love to do that. And then I kind of quit for a little while in college, 
But my college offered one commercial music class. And so I took that and it was taught by a realtor who wrote like jingles and stuff like that. But his main job was being a realtor. And I thought, man, if this guy can't make a living doing it, that's teaching the class, I'm not sure it can be done, you know? <laughs> so I really quit for a while. And then I started having family and, and that kind of stuff. So I didn't come back to it for a good while when I woke up one day and had an early midlife crisis and thought, man, I'm just not doing what I want to do in life. I went to a bookstore and was just searching for something that could help me figure out who sure. I want to be when I grow up. I read a book called What Colors Your Parachute that talks about finding what your passion is and then finding out how to make a living from your passion. And when I read that book, what I came out with was if I could have done anything, I would have been a songwriter. So I thought, well, I'll try it. I was in my mid-30s when I started seriously trying to, to write. When did the concept of songwriter even enter into your consciousness? Like, was it the book that made you go, oh, look, I can do this? Growing up in Nashville, I ran into songwriters all the time. Like, they would say, do you want more tea with your dinner and things like that, you know, or bring my pizza <laughs> or install our cable TV. I would hear my parents talking to these people and they go, oh, yeah, I came to Nashville to be a songwriter. But I didn't see anybody that was a songwriter for their job. And so I knew theoretically that there were songwriters that made a living doing it, but I didn't know any of them personally. What were you doing at the time? I was a youth pastor. So I did that for about 10 years. The midlife crisis came because I got offered a job doing that right out of high school, actually. And then I worked all through college as a youth minister. Then I got offered a full-time job and I kept getting offered these opportunities. And it was easy just to take them. Ten years later, I go, wow, I didn't even really choose that career. I just kind of fell into it. And it's not really maybe what I want to do forever. How does that conversation go with your loved ones when you turn to them and say, hey, I actually don't think I'm doing what my path is supposed to be right now. I mean, my wife at the time was like, um, okay. But she thankfully agreed to that I would work part-time at some odd jobs that she would work part-time and we would try to make it work. And that went on longer than either of us thought it would go on. We hoped that my success would come faster, but it did not. Tell us a little bit about the time that it took from the moment that you were like, okay, I want to switch to doing songwriting to when you started to sign your staff writer deal and think, okay, maybe I can actually do this. I think I was trying it full time for two years before I got a staff writing deal. And the staff writing deal was because people said, oh, that's when you made it. I was like, no, I was making $866 a month for the staff writing deal, giving up all my publishing and that kind of stuff. But it was with a guy who wound up being a Hall of Fame songwriter and was a great mentor. And so it was an amazing songwriting education. But even then, so working with him, being mentored, it took me about three and a half more years to get my first major label cut. And then it took me at least four years into that deal to get a hit where I really saw a big paycheck and felt like, okay, I can breathe a little bit now. You so know? even with that deal, you're still kind of living the 10-year town narrative. It was at least five and a half years from when I started to when I got that first big hit. Was it a big sort of surprise to you that after you got signed, it took you so long to even get that first cut? One of the things I didn't think about was they had another writer there who was really being successful at the moment. And then they had my publisher who was crazy successful. I mean, he was having Garth Brooks number ones. I think he had 12 of them or something like that. Wow. 
So the sobering realization was, it's going to be hard for me to even get a song out of this office. Not just get a song cut, but I'm competing with these two guys who are rocking. For me to get a cut, it's going to have to be as good or better than what they're doing. That was really sobering because I thought when I got my deal, okay, my publisher's going to be working for me and getting my songs out there. And they were when my songs were worthy, but it was not a charity. I had to beat them out. So if they're going to play three songs for a big artist, they pick the best three, not one of Marty's and one of each of theirs. Was the task of songwriting fulfilling you in the way that you didn't have prior? I knew that it was absolutely what I wanted to do. There was many days of doubt whether I would be able to do it and make it succeed at a level where I could do it full time and where I could do it for a long time. You know, there was a lot of doubt. I had a friend who basically staged an intervention at one point and came to me and said, hey, let me give you a job at my company. And it was more than I'd ever made with benefits. And it was a really difficult decision to turn that down. But that was kind of the defining moment where I said, okay, if I'm going to turn down this job, I've got to be all in on this and I have to make it happen. And I think that really ramped up my determination. Well, should we play one of those songs from yeah, let's do the it. early years of you starting to make it happen? Sure. Do you want to tell us anything about this song before we play it? It's one of those where I listen back and I just go, what were we thinking that day? You know, And it's not that structurally or anything, it's horrible. It's just, I go, I'm not really sure why we were thinking this was awesome <laughs> on the day that we wrote it. Oh man, I'm pumped. All right, so I'm going to play it. It is called All I Can Say Is Damn. All dressed up for a night out on the town Little bitty dress, high heel shoes And a hair all falling down Smells like heaven Got the devil in her eyes Looks at me, says, baby, please Tell me, do I look all right? And I was like, Kind of makes me want to bounce a little bit. (laughs) That's a great lyric right there, isn't it? Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Whoa. How did you guys write those out in the lyric sheet? Like a bunch of oohs and a bunch of... I mean, you technically didn't say anything other than damn. It was clever in that sense. (laughs) Yeah, there were some clever moments, but... As far as socially redeeming value, I'm not sure. <laughs> what would you there. fix about it now, now that you hear it back? I probably wouldn't write it. <laughs> <laughs> the whole concept. Uh, yeah, the whole concept. Uh, I probably would be like, you know what? So let's save that for your solo record and don't put me on it. Did you have a relationship with your publisher when you had it in songs like this, where your publisher would have levels where they say, love it, that's pretty good, and then never respond to certain songs? Oh, no, he would always respond. And oddly enough, he let me demo that song, too, which I'm like, why did you let me go ahead and spend money on that song? Oh, my gosh. Kind of at the time, because he was having all those Garth Brooks hits and everything, they were just like, the money's rolling in and let's just demo everything and pitch it and see what happens. Sometimes when you do have that momentum in town, when you have a couple big cuts, it feels like there's a few songs that maybe might not pass the bar, but because your name has momentum, you can get it through doors that previously you couldn't have. Yeah. Some of my friends have commented, I've never been fortunate enough to have 
a lot of my bad songs getting cut, but I've had some friends that were like on a really big roll and they'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm embarrassed that they pitched that song, you know, <laughs> and then it, it got cut. But there's hope for all of us then in that case. <laughs> Good problem to have. Yeah, great problem to have. So what was the first major cut that really kind of you were like, oh, okay, now I'm doing it? I got a song called Can't Stop Thinking About That cut by the group Ricochet. Mm. And they were doing pretty good at the time. And then the same week, I got a cut on Lone Star. And the rumbling was that Lone Star was going to lose their deal. So I thought, okay, can't stop thinking about that. It's going to be my best shot. And it went on to be a single, but it died at 37 on the chart or something like that. So it was technically my first top 40. But the Lone Star thing, even though mine was never a single, they put out Amazed, which was on that record, and it went like triple platinum. So it actually made a lot more money than the one that was a single just because it sold so much. Because those were the days still like CDs were coming out rapidly. If you had a B-side, you were still getting those mechanicals. Yeah. My publisher had to cut one song that was never a single on Garth, but it was on 22 million records or something oh like that gosh. that sold. And now it's 22 yeah. million streams and we barely see a cent of it. <laughs> yeah. At the time, emotionally and psychologically, are you reacting to this going, all right, I know I can do this now? Or are you still waiting for the big one to prove that you belong? Well, I think it validated that I can do this. I mean, I remember driving down the road where I was and I heard Can't Stop Thinking About That on the radio. And I was like, that's my song on the radio. And that was very validating in that it just gave me confidence. You know, I had family members and other people, too, that would say, you know, have you sold any songs yet? <laughs> yeah. You know, every time I see them, it was just embarrassing and felt like a little bit of a jab to me at times. So to be able to say, hey, I've got a song on the radio silenced all the critics mm -hmm. and their voices and criticism of me, I guess, for doing something crazy like that. But it still was eye-opening in that neither of those cuts made enough money for me to live on, right. you know, to where I thought, okay, I can be a songwriter and just do that. My first big one was While You Love Me with Rascal Flats that recouped my deal made me a good amount of money and gave me the hope that, okay, I can make this into a career. How long after the Ricochet cut was the Rascal Flats cut? It was about a year after that. And so are these cuts all outside cuts? Well, the Lone Star was written with Richie McDonald, the lead singer from Lone Star, but the other two were outside pitches. Did you find at that time that outside pitches were more common than, let's say, maybe today? In the beginning of my career, they were, but not for long. I think maybe the first three or four years... It seemed like that. And then things kind of started getting more into camps because when While You Love Me came out, Free Napster was just starting. And so when that song came out, before I got to hear it, there was like 100,000 free streams of it on Napster. But that was disheartening in that here I have this song out and before I can get a penny from it, there's all this happening yeah. where people are getting it for free. So that piece was really eye-opening. From Napster onwards, it has never been the same. It's kind of like a pivotal moment in music, and you kind of have a direct connection with one of your songs saying, wow, this is not how it used to be. Yeah, and that's when people started writing more with the artist and in the camp because they were thinking about how can I keep more money in our circle as opposed to let's just cut the best song. And thankfully, the word I'm hearing now from record labels in Nashville is hey, we need to get back to cutting the best song and we're looking for more outside cuts because they realize their artist can't write the top 10 songs available for that record, you know? As someone who's been in the industry 
Are there other changes that you noticed? My first publisher was one of the first people in Nashville to pitch songs on CDs. So he was very proactive as far as trying to stay on top of technology because when CDs first came out, I remember people saying, oh, this is going to ruin the music business because now you can make digital copies that's just as good a quality as opposed to making a cassette copy that's going to lose quality every time. So people thought the sky was falling when CDs came out and people resisted that. The people that got on top of it did best with it. So I kind of learned that approach of whatever comes down the road, you've got to just figure out how to work with it because you can't always change it. In terms of the changing nature of music itself, like how country music was changing. So from Rascal Flats going forward, there's the bro country phase that erupts and there's sort of these sonic phases that always sort of appear in Nashville. Then you get some of that East Nashville sound, that more trad sound that comes back a little bit with Lainey Wilson today and even Casey when she first came out. How have you approached a lot of these new sounds and new ideas? Are you one of those people that's like, let's try to write to that? Or are you more rooted in sort of, here's what I do best, so I'm going to stick to that? I think you have to have a blend of both. You have to be able to change with the industry. You can't just say, well, I write Western Swing and that's what I'm going to do. And (laughs) then nobody's cutting that anymore. I try not to chase things. So during bro country, that's not what I do well. That's not how I grew up. And I don't feel like I write it authentically. So I just kind of stayed true to what I do and tried to find where that's still relevant in the marketplace. So I evolved with some things that I liked in the marketplace. I let some things pass me by that I didn't really like. I don't know that many writers do everything well. I think everybody's kind of got a strength. I'm a big believer of find that and become one of the best that you can at what you do. But then also you have to pay attention to what's going on around you so that you can stay relevant. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How long were you with your first publisher for after all those years? I was just with him for five years. Where'd you go next after that? Um, I went to a company called Blacktop Music, which was owned by Clint Black. Oh, wow. And I was there probably four or five more years. And then that company got bought by a company called Olay out of Canada. Mm -hmm. And I was there a long time, maybe 10 or 12 years. And when they bought Blacktop, I was acquired in that deal. So I was a little bit of a stepchild there, but I had some advocates there most of the time. I'm interested in so many of your songs, especially some of your big number ones, but I'd love to know how you got the Joe Cocker cut. Because of Olay and their Canadian connections, they wanted me to write with Johnny Reed, who's a big star in Canada. Oh yeah, of course. And so Johnny showed up with another guy and said, hey, this is my friend Alan. Can he come with us? And it was Alan Frew from the band Glass Tiger. And so Johnny and Alan and I wrote that day. And Johnny kind of had this little seed of the idea for Fire It Up. Then after he recorded it, somebody at Olay was like, you know, he kind of sounds like Joe Cocker on that. And they decided to send it out to Joe Cocker's camp. And they're like, yeah, he does sound like Joe Cocker and it's great. 
And Joe loved it and wanted to do it. So was that kind of a unique cut for you? I mean, we'll get to the K-pop song, so which we'll talk about that <laughs> one, which will be unique. But yeah. that must have been a shock at the time because you're writing in Nashville. You're kind of thinking Nashville artists, like you hear Joe Cocker suddenly cutting one of your songs. Yeah, absolutely. Because he's a iconic artist, mm-hmm. it was just amazing to have him do it. And it wound up being his last number one song before he passed away. And oh, wow. on his final compilation CDs that they did after he passed away. You know, so many things in my career have just happened out of the blue like that. Like in many ways, I have for 25 years, I've chased a Kenny Chesney cut or a Blake Shelton cut. And I've purposely been trying to do that. But things like the K-pop hits and Joe Cocker and the Plain White Tees were things I never even dreamed of or imagined. It's just, I think, a byproduct of keeping your head down and doing the work. And then you never know. Probably if I had gone out and tried to get a Joe Cocker cut, I could not have. But the fact that I was just trying to write the best song, fate or luck or whatever it is, just kind of lets things fall into place sometimes. How many years into Olay were you when when the Joe Cocker cut came around? Was Cocker before the Carrington cut? I think it was after Must Be Doing Something Right, probably around the time of Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven, maybe. Would you mind walking us through how you got that Chesney cut? Were you writing for Kenny when you got the Kenny cut? Yeah, that's a weird story. So we were targeting Kenny with that song. And my co-writer, Jim Collins, had had some Kenny cuts before, like She Thinks My Tractor's Sexy. Oh, I love that song. And so we thought, let's try to write this for Kenny. Pitched it to everybody in Kenny's camp. Everybody passed on it. And George Strait wound up. Somebody pitched it to him, and he loved it, so he cut it. And he was out on his bus one time with Kenny, And he played Kenny everything he had cut. And there was two or three songs that didn't make the record. And mine was one of them. So when George's record came out, Kenny got it and saw that that song was not on there. And he remembered it. So I always say that George Strait pitched that song to Kenny for me. (laughs) So Kenny, his record label called and just said, hey, is this song available? And we're like, yeah, George passed on it. So we'd love for you to cut it. That is the most roundabout way I've ever heard a song getting cut. Who has a story like that where like a legend accidentally pitches one of your tracks to another legend? We were out there trying to get it to Kenny and nobody would play it for him. And then George Strait plays it for him and it happens that way. Do you know if the version he played was George singing on it too? Yeah, it's out on iTunes so you can hear the George version of it. Oh, really? I didn't know Uh that. I want to know about some of the pop stuff. I want to know about the Plain White Tees cut. And the song Bounce. Well, I was playing a show at the Bluebird one night and a guy came up to me and said, hey, I love your lyrics. Would you be interested in writing with me? I'm Tom. And I was like, I think it's Tom from Plain White Tees. You know, I wasn't quite sure at first. The more we talked, you know, the more I realized who he was. And I was like, sure, I would love to do that. So he wanted to write at nine o'clock at night. And I think every time we wrote, we started at nine o'clock. And the first time we wrote until about three o'clock in the morning. And we were at my office down on Music Row. And he goes, do y'all have any wine or liquor or anything? And I'm like, well, we have this bottle of wine we opened like three months ago. And it's just been sitting there with the cork in it. And he was like, that'll work. He pours me some and him some. And I taste it. I was like, that's going to make me throw up. So I'm just like barely acting like I'm sipping it while we're writing. And he he drank that one. But I guess we wrote both those songs that first night. And then I think we wrote again and and they did not cut that one. But I think out of three songs, they cut two. Um, Before you jump to the K-pop one, I got to ask you, are you a daytime writer or a nighttime writer? 
Oh, daytime. Yeah. I think tomorrow I've got an eight o'clock in the morning, right? Which I'm like, perfect. Two hours and I'm done for the day kind of thing. Yeah. I'm with you, man. I struggle with night rides. They scare me when someone's like, hey, let's meet at 8 p.m. I'm like, I'm already like in my pajamas, reading a book (laughs) with a glass of bourbon, getting ready for bed. (laughs) Like that's not writing time for me. But I guess when the call comes in, when you have an opportunity to write with something pretty cool and you take it, don't you? Yeah. I mean, I love that band. And so I thought, man, I'm not going to tell him no because he wants to write at night. You know, living that lifestyle, you probably get into that schedule of you're out on tour, you're up really late, and that's when he wants to work. And the K-pop stuff, so I went to Sweden to write at a writing camp there. It was in an old coffee mill, and every room had someone who sang, played every instrument, recorded, mixed, and mastered. They had the most efficient setup I've ever seen. It was amazing. So they would put an artist and a top liner and the producer in the room and we would write songs. By six o'clock that night, we would have a wine and listening party and play the mastered recordings from what we wrote that day. And so Bounce was a song that I wrote with a couple of guys. And we thought this might be like a commercial, like for Bounce dryer sheets or Target or whatever. It's just like, you know, you make me bounce and it's real peppy and happy. And somehow that publishing company was really well connected in J-pop and K-pop. And so they would pitch directly to artists and camps and they pitched it to this artist who they described to me as like the Korean Paul McCartney. He was like a legendary artist and his wife had died 10 years prior and he swore that he would never sing again. So he quit his career kind of became a little bit of a recluse, I guess. And After 10 years, somebody talked him into kind of making a comeback, and he chose Bounce as his comeback song. The Korean interpreter kind of rewrote the lyric so it doesn't at all say what we had it saying. They kept the chorus in English, and then he rewrote the verses. Does the interpreter get a cut of the writing? Yeah, interpreter got, I guess, a fourth of the, became a fourth writer on it. And that's still really common with K-pop stuff, the translating aspect. Most of the lyrics end up getting changed. Yeah. And knowing what I know now, I've negotiated some better deals at times where I go, okay, if you're going to use a lot of it in English, you're not going to get a fourth of the thing. But if you're rewriting the whole thing, I can understand how they would want to do that. That's interesting. I actually didn't even realize that a lot of the K-pop pitches, you just write some peppy, bouncy track and let the interpreter sort of mess with it a little bit. Those Swedish guys write it all in English, and then they just pitch the English versions, and then they have a translator that does some work on it. This is a tough question to ask, so if there isn't an answer for it, then don't worry about it. I'm interested in your sort of storied career now, 150 cuts and these number ones. Is there any songs that stick out for whatever reason, or is there a song or two that come right to the top? That would be hard to say. I mean, I think Fire It Up is one that I'm really proud of. There's some parts in there about racism, social justice kind of things that I was excited that they kept in there. Joe Cocker's manager or somebody in the camp called and said, can we take this part out? And we said, no, if you're going to do the song, we want you to keep it in there. And Joe said that he wanted to do it and keep it in there. So I feel like that song has some socially redeeming value, maybe more than other songs that are just entertainment. I'm proud of must be doing something right. And that's the kind of song I like to write. Let Me Down Easy and Must Be Doing Something Right are two of my, if I just wanted to listen to something, I might put those on. Fire It Up would be one. Another would be a song called Back to the Simple Things that Don Williams cut because he was, again, kind of an iconic artist when I started out. And so just to hear his voice on my song was cool. 
Was there an artist when you first came into Nashville that you really wanted to cut one of your songs, that you got to cut one of your songs? I would say Kenny Chesney. I've always liked his music. I love the beach and I love reggae music. So I feel like I've always related to his stuff. When he started doing more of those beach lifestyle kind of songs, I really love that. Like he does now on No Shoes Radio, yeah. all that kind of stuff. So he would definitely be there. Tim McGraw is one that I would love to have a cut on, but I've not had a cut on. Blake Shelton is one, like I mentioned chasing that for 20 years or something. You yeah. know, he's one that I finally got a cut on after that. Tim is still on my bucket list. I have an interesting question to ask you. When you look back on your development as a songwriter, is there an aspect of your writing that you feel you improved the most on since you started as a pro? Like, was there something you were like, I am the weakest at this? And then now you look back and you've developed that to a point where you're like, I'm very confident in this? When I first started out, I was trying to impress other songwriters and be clever. And when I look back at my early music, I'm like, yeah, that's cool wordplay or whatever, but it doesn't make me feel anything. And so I, th I think this skill of making something sound real and honest and something that moves somebody is something I've developed. And I feel like I'm much better. In fact, the song that you guys are going to play, the one that I like, is one that I feel like just feels real and honest and raw. And that's something I've had to work on. We all want to have a song where we play it for other songwriters and they go, oh, wow, that's the best rhyme for whatever I've ever heard, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, you quickly realize that's not the point of it. The point is to reach people and move people and cause a reaction in a listener. Wow. Yeah, I mean, and sense. that makes it come full circle when, you know, you can look back at, ooh, yeah, damn, those lyrics and see how with your journey that you've really wanted to have songs with more substance that say something. As I get older, one thing that I look at, too, is I want my children and my grandchildren to be able to listen to my body of work someday and know who I was, you know, to know what I believed, you know, what I valued and those kind of things. And all I can say is, damn, it's not <laughs> a good representation of that, you know? <laughs> I feel that. Working in sync, you know, half the songs I write are like, ooh, yeah, damn. So, you know, that's the world I'm living in. <laughs> Were there aspects of your career before songwriting, your degree in psychology, your work as a youth minister that carried over into songwriting? Psychology, very much so, because I think so much of having a hit song is understanding how people think and what they want, and what they want to hear and what they don't want to hear and why this song would be not pleasant for them, you know. So I think the psychology has been really, really helpful. And the youth ministry piece was sort of applying psychology to real life in a lot of ways by doing a lot of counseling and, and that kind of stuff. So I guess there's some applications there, but not as much practical stuff. Okay, well, we're going to play the song that you brought for us today. But before I kind of want to hit you with the big question, if you could give yourself Three pieces of advice when you were just getting started out, what would they be? Be real and not clever. Just write from your heart and not try to be so clever. Don't compare yourself to other people. And probably the third one would be don't chase things too hard. Be educated about what's happening 
and change with the industry, but don't chase things that you don't like or that are not authentic to you. Is there anything about this song we're going to play, The Wine We Didn't Drink, that you want to tell us before we play it? Yeah, there's an interesting story behind it. So my first publisher came in one day and, and he said, man, I broke down yesterday. He had taken his daughter to college. They only had one child. And they took her and dropped her off in Boston at Berkeley. And he came home and they were cleaning out some things in her room. And he found this kite that he bought her when she was 12. It was still in the package. So he wrote a song called The Kite We Didn't Fly about buying this kite for her and then things we never get around to in life. So it made me start thinking, okay, what if you were doing an adult version of that song? And I thought, well, you know, maybe a a couple buys a bottle of wine to celebrate something someday and then things get bad and they never drink that wine. And one of the partners finds it, you know, what do they do with it? So that's where this song came from. Wow. That's beautiful. I love that title and love the hook so much. That's that's fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing your story. You're welcome. Glad to do it. Well, this is the wine we didn't drink. And for those out there in podcast land, I am David Boris. And I'm Frankie C. And remember, everybody Everybody sucks. This fancy bottle of Merlot, it wasn't made to drink alone. Sitting, feeling lonely, looking back. We always said we celebrate Pop the cork on it someday I hate we never got around to that You would have loved it There won't be none of it left tonight We put it on the shelf And put a bunch of stuff in front of it and out of mind, I guess Sat up there collecting dust Don't that sound a lot like us Waiting on a chance we'll never get We could have been amazing, don't you think Like the wine we didn't drink It makes me think of all the things we didn't do And all the drink we kept bottled up for later on They say time makes good things better Maybe if we stuck together We'd be toasting to us staying strong Well